Welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzen, episode 516. A video edition of today's episode aired as the Slow Flowers show on Wednesday, July 21st, simultaneously broadcast on both YouTube and Facebook Live. If you missed it, you can find the replay video in today's show notes at deborahprinzing.com for episode 516. This is the weekly show about slow flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This show is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free online directory to more than 880 florists, shops, and studios who design with local, seasonal, and sustainable flowers, and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. In celebration of Slow Flowers Show's 8th anniversary, we launched our new live stream video format with the goal of sharing the faces and voices of our members, as well as showing tours of their farms, their shops, their studios, and most of all, their flowers. Today, you're hearing the audio version of last week's video program. Before we get started, I want to thank our sponsors. Thank you to our lead sponsor for 2021, Farm Girl Flowers. Farm Girl Flowers delivers iconic burlap wrap bouquets and lush, abundant arrangements to customers across the U.S., supporting more than 20 U.S. flower farms by purchasing more than $9 million of U.S.-grown fresh and seasonal flowers and foliage annually. Discover more at farmgirlflowers.com. Our first sponsor thank you goes to Rooted Farmers. Rooted Farmers works exclusively with local growers to put the highest quality, specialty cut flowers in floral customers' hands. When you partner with Rooted Farmers, you are investing in your community and you can expect a commitment to excellence in return. Learn more at rootedfarmers.com. Today's conversation was originally broadcast in late May by Sustainability Champions, an investigative podcast series made for the environmental stewards of the world, produced and hosted by Daniel Hartz. The series defines sustainability as the avoidance of the depletion of natural resources in order to maintain an ecological balance, and it defines champion as one who supports or defends a cause. We can all get behind that, right? Well, Daniel Hartz, the producer and founder of Sustainability Champions, is an American-based in London. He started Sustainability Champions to showcase people around the world working hard to heal the planet through business innovation, community organizing, and individual messages of optimism. Daniel believes that sustainability often makes financial sense and that the future of the environment is bright. I'm so grateful that he invited me to share the story of the Slow Flowers Movement on Sustainability Champions. Enjoy the conversation and check out our show notes for episode 516 to find the links and more resources about Daniel Hartz and this series. Hey, Sustainability Champions, Daniel Hartz here. Did you know 80% of mass-produced flowers uh, grown in the U.S. often come from outside the U.S., and they're grown using harsh chemicals and pesticides? Well, today I'm speaking with sustainability champion Deborah Prinzing 
the founder of the Slow Flowers Movement, who saw this challenge and decided to do something about it. The Slow Flowers Movement is all about sourcing flowers that are grown locally, seasonally, and without any chemicals. Deborah's website, slowflowers.com, connects consumers to farmers, florists, and grocery stores, offering domestic blooms to make it easier to find each other. Deborah has written two books on the topic. The first one is Slow Flowers, Four Seasons of Locally Grown Bouquets from the Garden, Meadow, and Farm. And the second one is the 50-Mile Bouquet, Seasonal, Local, and Sustainable Flowers. So I'm really looking forward to learning more about the solution to what turns out to be a pretty big environmental challenge. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Daniel. How are you? I'm doing very, very well. Yeah. And uh, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Likewise. Yeah. And where are you joining from? I'm joining you from Seattle, Washington, the Pacific Northwest corner of the United States. Beautiful. Very green part of the country. And for those of you who are watching uh, this live, just uh, to uh, put this out there, please feel free to type questions or comments in the chat for Deborah. I'll, I'll be watching them. Uh, I see Maria Petrova says hello from London. Hello, hello. Uh, and I'll, I'll be watching that and, and we can get those questions answered for you. So today, uh, Deborah, I'd like to cover three things. Number one, really what the slow flower movement is and how it works. Then go into the moment you realize this is what you wanted to do. Uh, and from there, we'll talk about what we can all do to be more environmentally friendly in our daily lives. So how does that sound? I love it. Sounds great. Excellent. Well, let's let's jump straight into it. I think that's enough enough for me. So um, going into the slow flowers movement, what is it? That's It's a term that uh, I actually came across only very recently. So what is what is it all about? Well, it, you, I think you and probably a lot of your uh, viewers have heard of the... Um, the whole slow food movement, which has been around for decades and really uh, was uh, emerged as an anti-fast food kind mm -hmm. of sentiment. It actually was originated in Italy, but it, it is global now. Right. And um, I use, I borrow that term slow as a sort of, you know, way to explain that I support local oh. sustainable and seasonal flowers. So it's very mm -hmm. similar in the food to what's happening in the food world. Flowers are kind of catching up though. Um, so when it, when the philosophy started, it really was just a shorthand way for me to explain to people what I was writing about because uh, I had gotten into this, this project. You mentioned one of my books. This, this is the book, the 50 mile bouquet, uh, which came out nine years ago. And um, that reference is, kind of also borrowed from the food world because there was this whole concept of the 100 mile diet. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh, it's like, there's a term called food mile. And I was just adapting it to flower mile. And so the 50 mile bouquet was just actually not a rule, but kind of a, a metaphor for local. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's been my, my obsession for the last 10 years. And really as an advocate and educator and convener of a conversation, I'm trying to move the, practitioners into this uh, mindset, anybody in the floral industry. Um, and I just want to sit at the table with like the mainstream commercial flower farming and um, sort of mainstream floristry to say, hey, there's a better way. There's an other alternative. Have you thought about it? And in doing so, it's really been a bubble up kind of concept that mm -hmm. that gardeners like me have uh, have, you know, been you know, easily they adopt that readily like, oh, yeah, I grow flowers 
in my garden or my neighbor grows flowers, why am I getting them on a jumbo jet shipped from another continent when I know they grow in my, my neighborhood? And so that's sort of a pragmatic thing too. Like, okay, yeah, this doesn't make sense. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So that, that 80% that we, that I started with that is what, when you go to the, just any supermarket or any store, really, that's what, what you're looking at is. Yeah. 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 And actually you had, I think uh, you said 80% of mass produced flowers grown in the U S but you meant sold in the U S I think when we started and I, I was like, yeah, you know, it's confusing because people yeah. think they're grown in the U S when they see them at the grocery store. Um, that number uh, and it may be very, it, it's probably very similar in other countries that have had their agriculture outsourced. So probably in the UK where you are, um, many places in Europe, um, Canada for sure. And so that number wasn't always that way. Yeah, that makes sense. And what, what in the US, what happened was in the late 80s, early 90s, there was trade legislation um, called the Andean Trade Preference Agreement, which... Um, basically was the so-called war on drugs to incentivize uh, cocoa farmers uh, in countries like Colombia and Ecuador to plant different crops. And so there were, there were no tariffs on flowers coming in from those countries. And that's what decimated the U S domestic uh, floral agriculture world, the old, the old world <laughs> when it wasn't 80%, when it was probably 20% of it was the flipped. It was like 20% imports, 80% domestic. So I think and that's it's just been this like drip, drip, drip ever since. It's interesting because uh, yeah, it's kind of the um, sort of law of unintended consequences. You have these, you know, you, you do one thing that is good, you know, getting rid of, uh, well, hopefully uh, encouraging uh, producers to switch from drug crops to flowers, but then of course that changes the way uh, the economics of an, a whole other market works. Yeah. Um, actually just a comment from Ian Stewart uh, from Ireland. He says um, that at the markets he attends, the flower sellers grow their own uh, flowers. And it's more like uh, centimeters rather than kilometers because it's, I love it's it. right next door. I, I have a term you can, I, I just realized I didn't have the comment section turned on. So now I can see Ian. Thank you. I, um, I call it the five step bouquet going out my backyard, uh, my, back, my back door to my cutting garden. So yeah, that's yay for Ian. He's buying the right flowers. <laughs> well done, Ian. So going back to the, the actual slow flower. So it's really about, uh, it, like you said, it, it's the concept of, uh, it's like slow food. So we're talking about local, meaning, well, you said five steps, which is hyper-local. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, seasonal. So we're talking about flowers or, well, if we're starting with food, you're talking about food that's in season right now. Mm -hmm. And so we mm -hmm. just apply that to flowers and then chemical-free uh, as much as possible. So if we start with with that first one about locality, and I, I know we just kind of talked about it, but on a yeah, more- let's unpack of, it. Yeah. So what does it really mean that the flowers are local and and who are we talking about when we say that these need to be local flowers? Yeah, it's really hard to put your finger on it because it's a, such an elastic term. I searched far and wide to find out if the, in the U.S. government had a definition of local. And there is a, um, in the USDA, U U.S. Department of Agriculture, does have um, a policy where they describe local as um, within a 400-mile four, radius or within the state in which it's produced. So, you know, a state mm -hmm. like Rhode Island is tiny and 
you, you know, you can't travel 400 miles and still be in the state, whereas California or Texas, it's massive. Um, so that's sort of the, and that was applied to edible crops, right? So I'm, that's one gauge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously we talked about hyperlocal, which is excellent, but in terms of like commerce, uh, a lot of, a lot of florists are trying to, um, there are florists who are trying to source from within a 200 mile radius. And that means that um, they have to get really creative in the winter. And we can talk about that. Um, But for others who are trying to be local in winter months, at least in the US, um, it means probably buying all your flowers from California or possibly Florida or Hawaii. Hmm. And there is a transportation footprint in that. I I don't wanna be naive, but you know, at least it's, you're supporting a domestic flower farm. So I don't know if that helps. Yeah, well, I, I, it is really complicated because ultimately, especially, and this kind of moves into seasonality, but once we start looking at winter flowers, I think summer flowers or spring flowers, it, yeah. it makes sense. You yeah. know, they they probably grow abundantly in most places. Yeah. Um, but once you do move into uh, into winter, I mean, what do you do? I suppose the only way is really, um, like you said, you have to start, importing them or not importing, but really moving them from, uh, California. And is there, is there any way, well, I guess a question would, would be, is there a way to, or would you consider slow flowers being grown in a greenhouse? Yes. Would that, does yeah. that count? Yeah. And that's in the last, you know, 15 years since I've been kind of documenting this, especially since the, the book came out and, um, my two books came out in 2012, 13, We've seen this thing called uh, season extension really happening, especially among um, more artisan, um, small-scale growers who are trying to uh, really push the season so they're using high tunnels or greenhouses to get, say, chrysanthemums into the fall or but just have uh, anemones and ranunculus you know, while the ground's still frozen because they're able to grow them undercover. So there's that innovation is happening in that realm. Um you know, there were greenhouses all across America that were growing roses for hmm. until this Andean trade preference agreement. And some of them are just in, you know, they're, they, they're in disarray and there are people who are trying to restore and start up again, but it's really uh, capital intensive. So, um, you know, when I did this book, the slow flowers book, which is this one, I, it would, the whole point of it was to create a bouquet every week for a year using what was in my own garden or what I could get wow. from a local flower farmer. So here's an example of a winter arrangement. It's twigs and, and cut up orchid plants, you know, and that is the twigs. Beautiful. From, they were from my yard and um, they, um, you know, the, there was a sacrificial orchid involved, <laughs> but this is another one that I'm sort of seeing happen. Like this is all, oops, let me get around my mic. This is all foliage and just, just evergreen plants from my, you know, my region. And um, so the seasonality, the goal of seasonality is actually changing the aesthetic because we're choosing plants that are available to us. So it is a quieter palette or a little bit, um, a lot of, you know, people are using house plants. People are using um, twigs and conifers. They're um, trying to just, look at what's available in nature and see the beauty in that. And that, so that's kind of an interesting byproduct. And you really see all of a sudden this understanding of seasonality. I don't want to see a, a peony in December because it's, you know, shipped from Chile or something like that. I mean, a, 
or I see it and it seems out of place or odd. Mm. So it's kind of a subtle shift, but I'm definitely, um, I think that more florists who are practicing the slow flowers ethos and are, are changing what they're offering their clients in the winter months, it's sort of training the consumer to see the seasons again. I think that's, yeah, as you're talking about, I think that's exactly the point is really considering, um, yeah, the consumer really needs to rethink what it means to actually have quote flowers specifically because those, those examples aside from the orchid actually, uh, well that, uh, foliage one, there weren't, as far as I could tell, there were no flowers per se in them. It was just beautiful leaves that are all different colored, uh, creating a very interesting and beautiful, um, bouquet and, and using that as, kind of instead of flowers. There were, yeah, there were a few hellebores in there, but that's not, that's because they grow in my area. You know, they may not grow everywhere for people. Yeah. But you know what you're talking about also, I I wanted to comment on is that in America and probably in the UK too, uh, the consumer marketplace works against seasonality because we've been trained to have instant gratification. We've been trained by the, by the commercial world to want everything all the time. And so, you know, when you value seasonality, it does put you on a different course. And maybe you have to deny yourself something, uh, you know, but that's not bad. That's actually good for the environment. So it's interesting. Yeah. Cause um, if you compare it to food, um, yeah, I mean, you, it doesn't make any sense to eat tomatoes in the winter because uh, that's not when they grow. And I wonder, although th- this is strictly about food, but it's it just an interesting thought is I wonder if um, actually your body isn't really designed to even digest those kind of foods mm. outside of that time period. Because, um, you know, in the winter, your body needs certain nutrients and a tomato may not provide those nutrients because it's not designed to be ripe at that time. I like that. Yeah, there's the one thing I was going to mention. I, I hadn't thought about putting this on my list of comments, but when you said, you know, in the winter you can't have tomatoes, I wanted to just jump in and say, you know, that's why our grandparents learned how to preserve and can and and dry and like save that harvest for the time when it's not available. And that is happening in floristry as well. Mm-hmm. We're seeing this huge resurgence of people drying and preserving flowers and using those in the winter months. And, you know, there's some amazing practice. People are learning how to do it better and better than back in the seventies. And, and again, consumers are seeing that as beauty and appreciating it and not thinking, Oh, it's just something dry and Brown, you know? Yeah. Well, I think if, yeah, if you, if you're really good at it, it's sometimes it's in some ways even more beautiful than a fresh bouquet has its own distinct look and it, it, um, yeah, when when done correctly, I, I can think actually my my mom has this one uh, bouquet that's dried, and I've seen it my entire life. It must be I don't know how many decades old. <laughs> I hope at this she's point. dusting it because they do <laughs> tend to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they it, but they do kind of like uh, represent a t- point in time, and I love that. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, there's a comment from Maria Petrova who, um, speaking of of food, says that um, she likes to. Uh, buy seeds from local shops, um, but she's never seen uh, seeds about, and I'm assuming this is about flowers in terms of edible flowers. So like, um, for instance, I'm actually growing some chives right now, and I've never seen a chive flower before. And they're these beautiful purple, they're not very big, but they're beautiful purple flowers. Um, And so what about, you know, edible flowers as as an arrangement or, or a bouquet? Is that something that you're seeing? 
Yes. And I, um, it's interesting because a lot of small scale growers, they're trying to develop as many channels as possible for their, what their, you know, quarter acre is producing or whatever. And so many of them have um, found that edible flower, there's a demand among chefs and bartenders for edible flowers that mm. are organic. Mm. And that's the, that's the real, the really, the real competitive edge they have because they can, you know, deliver something that's a hundred percent organic that hasn't been treated or with any kind of um, synthetic um, additive. And so I'm seeing people sell um, like at the, the wholesale market by me, there are farmers who bring in little like uh, boxes of a selection of uh, edible flowers and they'll just mm -hmm. sell that as a mix, like a confetti mix. So yes, I, I love that. I think it's another way to engage consumers in sustainable growing practices. Like, well, you are going to put that in your body. Maybe not, yeah. maybe not the rose in your front yard, but, but the nasturtium and the borage is going to go in your cocktail. So you want it to be organic. Absolutely. And, um, and the chive. <laughs> chive. Yeah, absolutely. So does the, uh, just about this organic uh, point does um, slow flowers. If I hear that term, should I, or can I rather assume that it is organic or at least chemical free or because yeah. or organic means that it necessarily has a label on it. Yes. But, I mean that in the U S that we organic has pretty much is run by the United States department of agriculture. And so you have to qualify for that certification. And I will just say that, that whole USDA, USDA certified organic was designed for the food industry. Right. Very, and often like one or two, only one or two key crops. Most small scale flower farmers are highly diversified and they have 50 or 100 varieties. It's much harder to meet those standards. Mm. And a lot of it is just the a bureaucratic paperwork and these small farmers don't even have employees, you know, it's just a time thing. So there's a couple things that are happening. One is people use sustainability a lot and that's um, a slippery slope because you've got to figure out what does that mean? There are some alternatives to USDA or certified organic. There's one mm -hmm. called certified naturally grown. And that's okay, an organization yeah. that you can find all the, I, it may be international. It's, um, it's a peer to peer, uh, uh, organization where farmers who volunteer to evaluate other farms and they have credentials and all. So I think that's a proudly people proudly display certified naturally grown in the, there's also regional ones um, in the Pacific Northwest where I am, there's a, um, a, a designation called salmon safe. And I okay. know you've been to my region, Daniel, so you understand that if you hear something safe for salmon, you're like, okay, it's safe for humans because we are so passionate about preserving our salmon habitat. But it, it came out of the wine industry and the vineyards were using yes. it to um, to say there is no runoff that is un it's unsafe for the waterways. And so now the flower farmers are, are allowed to get that certification too. Um, That's cool. Yeah. But in general, I, on my... I have a slow flowers manifesto and, and two of the six uh, points in it talk about chemical free practices. One is to encourage, to encourage sustainable and organic farming practices that respect people in the environment and the environment. So that's geared toward the farmers. And then toward the florists, I say to eliminate waste and the use of chemical products in the floral industry. Hmm. So that there's a, it's not green is not green. It's, there's a lot of, of bad stuff, toxic chemicals being used by florists. And so, um, part of my advocacy is to educate people about alternatives. Interesting. So actually 
uh, and and this is just to clarify. So what you're saying is that florists as well, once they get flowers, they also use chemicals. Yeah, but they all, yes, they do. Um, they might, they might be using some kind of um, uh, like solution to like a hydrating solution or something, which maybe okay. on this continuum, maybe that's okay. Cause it's, you know, or it's got natural elements like, um, you know, like Salix, which is a byproduct of, of Willow, but, um, or some, but you don't know, some of these are proprietary products. So you have to ask, yeah. but the biggest, the biggest sin in the floral industry is the green brick of floral foam, which is like a styrofoam, like arranging mechanic. And, um, I know you talked about this when, when Hitomi Gilliam was on, that is a formaldehyde based single use plastic does not break down in landfills is not biodegradable as much as these companies want to that make it want to say it is it biodegrades into microplastic, you know, insidious little elements. So that's the big um, challenge in the floral industry is to try to change those practices and show alternatives. Yeah. Um, that's the main one. Uh, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Cause it, it really is in that case. First, it, it's like, um, it's a three-step process. The first step is, um, talking to the actual farmers, making sure that they're using um, chemical-free practices. And um, I don't want to use the word organic just because it, it has a very specific yeah. meaning, but like, um, yeah. I suppose, environmentally friendly practices. A lot, a lot of people say, I use organic practices. I yeah. think that's okay to say. Yeah. That's true. And then, so that's step one. And then the next step is making sure that the florists take that and, and sort of respect that and continue uh, without using any other kind of chemicals. And I suppose the third step is really educating the consumer to understand that beauty may not always require certain flowers at certain times of year, or it doesn't need to look in a specific, look a specific way, which requires some of these chemicals. Um, I love the way you put that, but it's so true. Those three, three those are the three places where flowers, uh, you can make an impact and have a positive change. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, th I would imagine the consumer education is probably the most challenging. It is. It really is. And, um, you know, I get into these conversations with florists who uh, who say, well, my bride really wants white hydrangeas in January and I can't disappoint my bride. And I yeah. want to say, but you're the expert is you need to bring them along. You need to show them alternatives that are that are better for the environment and that's you feel empowered, you know, and I think the Slow Flowers Society and our organization, we're trying to empower our members to to make those right decisions, even if there's a perceived financial risk. Mm -hmm. um, but, it, and, it, and I think when they get a, a couple wins, then they feel emboldened to be a little bit more uh, vocal about it. Um, and I also think that the, the power of social media is really changing consumers awareness of this as well, because, you know, there's a lot of sexy farm porn out there on Instagram that is so romantic and like so uh, storybook almost that it's changing what is our definition of beautiful. And uh, that's a positive. I mean, is I'm kind of poking fun at the internet, but you know, or at uh, like Instagram, but it it's it's doing the job. It's shifting attitudes. Absolutely, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I follow some of those accounts, and it's it's wonderful to see. And you just sort of sit there and it, it's like you said, it's very romantic. Um, speaking of, of the farming and going back to the, 
to the food aspect, um, just wanted to read a comment from Chris Blackstone who said that uh, he loves seeing the re revisit uh, in terms of bouquets to the inclusion of fruits or even kale or lettuce in yeah. large bouquets uh, as we see in Flemish master paintings. Yes. As and soon as he said the Flemish master, I remember, yeah, these massive cabbages and things. Actually, Chris is a woman. She's a friend of mine from oh, Chris, New sorry. England. Hi, Chris. Thanks for joining us. That's neat. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a great, um, uh, yeah, sorry for saying she, uh, or he rather, um, I think that's a, that's a great, uh, great point. Cause you, you really can get very creative. Uh, it, I think there's, and may, maybe, I, I suppose this goes back to that idea of consumer education. Cause when you go to any grocery store, you see a very similar type of bouquet, you know, whether you're in California, Seattle, or, or London, it's the same type of roses. It's the same type of like big daisy things and mm -hmm. they're beautiful. Um, but there's the creativity there. It's it's very sort of mainstream, I suppose, is what you yeah. call it. It's, very it's, it's a commodity. It's a commodity versus couture, you know, and, and yeah. that's what we're starting to be drawn to is something that doesn't look mass produced. Yeah, that's um, yeah, there, it's uh, almost like boutique flowers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so you, you mentioned briefly that slowflowers.com, which is what, what we're talking about here. Uh, it's essentially a way for consumers, uh, farmers, or I suppose for consumers to connect to farmers, florists, and grocery stores uh, in order to get access easily to slow flowers. Um, that's a very high level uh, explanation. What, is, there, <laughs> is there more to slow flowers um, that, that you'd like to share? Uh, sure. I mean, basically, when I started the, the website, the online directory in 2013, it was right after the book Slow Flowers came out. And the, for, for 12 months, I had been talking about, you know, support your, you know, you hear this term, know your food, know your farmer. And I was yes. trying to co-opt it and say, know your flowers, know your farmer. And or the other way around. Anyway, um, I kept saying, you know, I would talk about this at, at book signings or flower shows and audit the audience as well as the media would, would say to me, okay, we, we drank the Kool-Aid. We love your idea. We want to get on board. How do I find a farmer? How do I find a florist who I know is sourcing from a farmer? You know, where are these people? And I kept saying, someone needs to start a directory. And, you know, somehow that became me and I started it and um, you know, it became, it, it was, it became over time more than just paying a, a nominal amount of money to, get your business listed on slow flowers. Um, and now it's just this whole like marketing platform and community network of farmers and florists. So when the consumer comes to slowflowers.com, they can search by zip code, city, state, or type of flower um, uh, or specific thing, like someone who, who designs weddings or whatever, you can search mm -hmm. all that and find, we have about 880 members now. And so you can all across uh the U.S. and all, many of the Canadian provinces. We don't have. We have about sixty members in Canada, so um, you can do that. And but there is that was a my mind that was a B to C solution, and then what came out of it was a B to B solution where florists were joining Slow Flowers and using the directory to find farmers to buy from, and farmers were starting to educate themselves about what does the floral marketplace really want, what, <laughs> and, and developing a, a dialogue with those those florists in their community and saying, well, what can I grow for you? What colors are going to be on trend next year? You know, and these two worlds, where's my hands? These two worlds weren't talking and now they're finally reconnecting again through this forum. 
That's amazing. It's a, it's so cool. Uh, you're, you're, yeah, you're you're making it easier for everyone. Wins this way, you know. You have um, consumers who they're looking for things. They don't know how to find it. They say, "I wish we could do it." Well, it doesn't exist, so I'm just going to go buy roses um, right. from, like you said, Colombia. Uh, so you're you're helping the consumers. You're helping the florists who say, "Well." Uh, you know, I want to give this flower to you, but unfortunately we don't have it. Uh, and mm-hmm. then you're helping the farmers because they're, they know what to grow. And so everyone wins. It's a win, win, win. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we plus, just need more of it now. We exactly. need more people to do this. <laughs> exactly. So um, actually just uh, clearly the, the food aspect in, in floristry is, uh, is fun for everyone. Um, Rena, who um, says uh, she remembers her office sending a bouquet when her brother passed away uh, and there was a huge cabbage in the middle and she picked it out and then her sister-in-law cooked it. <laughs> you know, I think that we're also fascinated. And when we see food used in a non-traditional way, and that is definitely, you know, Chris referred to the Flemish artists. It's not like we just invented this, but it, there's definitely a lot of fun, um, uh, you know, just, like florists who are intentionally buying cherry tomatoes on the vine to, mm. you know, to work into some seasonal arrangement because it's that wonderment, that aha moment that um, captures your imagination when you see it. So, yeah, when I say flowers, I'm kind of broadly talking about your art supplies, <laughs> any botanical well, art supply. I think that's, that's a really important point because, you know, when I hear flowers, I think, as we just talked about mainstream bouquet from a grocery store mm-hmm. and that's, that's it. And I, and as it turns out, and this is what I'm learning through this conversation as we're speaking is it's actually a completely, uh, that's a very limited, that's one type of flower arrangement, but actually flower arrangements. And I, and I have seen these, but um, I guess the, the point is to be a little bit more um, conscious of it and, and more, um, you know, doing it with more, I'm blanking on the word right now, but really going after something yeah. that looks different. Yeah. You actually have to be intentional about intentional, it. And, um, and the more we observe nature, the more we recognize that this is, this is a different definition of beauty. It's a better exactly. definition of beauty than what, you know, corporate floristry has told us, you know, we can, we have, I call it the dirty dozen. We have like this limited wind, you know, pool of, or bucket of flowers that we can choose from, you know, not so much. Exactly. Let's, yeah. Let, let's offer people more. And it's good too, because then you can really find unique bouquets and unique, uh, unique ways of of presenting things that are different, uh, which I think people like. People like unique. Um, going back to kind of how this all started, what what was that moment really when you realized that the slow flower move? You you mentioned that you know you were looking for others and and all of that, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. that's how how it came about. But where did the where did the real interest initially come from? You know, you asked me that question. You asked me to prepare for that question. And I thought, <laughs> I can't put my finger on a specific um, moment, like a like a big aha moment. But it was like this gradual, organic shift toward what has been an amazing career change for me over the past uh, 15 years. Mm. Um, I thought back to the first flower farmer I interviewed, and it was in 2004 when I was working on a book called The Abundant Garden about gardens on Bainbridge Island, which is this glorious garden filled island uh, um, a 30 minute ride from Seattle by ferry and there was a small fam- a home-based flower grower who had like you know the the end of the driveway flower stand with the the you know the honor system for you know paying for the neighbors paid for the bouquets um, so you know something could have 
could have happened back then. I don't know. But I had this amazing home and garden writing career, doing producing books, writing for national magazines. I w- was wrote for the LA Times for 10 years um, as a freelancer and like really got had a wonderful career. But all along, I kept stumbling into people growing flowers. And what really um, was a chain, turning point, I, I, I'm glad you asked this question because I actually had to sit and think about it for a while. But in 2010, on a whim, I went to the National Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers Conference, wow. which is a large mouthful, but it's, I'll say it ASCFG is the short term. So it's this association has been around for 30 years of small scale cut flower growers. Many of them are people who you would find at your local farmer's market. Mm-hmm. And they were, um, they had a national meeting and it was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I, in the middle of like November. So they can't even meet until flower season's over. And I was just, um, I, something sparked my interest at that meeting, at that conference. And it was this David and Goliath story of um, these unsung heroes who were fighting this international global wave of flowers being imported and like what an uneven playing field that was. And I like thought from a storyteller's point of view, no one's telling their stories. Hmm. And I saw that a, a role that I could play in um, amplifying those voices. And um, actually from a gardener's point of view, I knew those stories would, would connect with my readers because as I said earlier, this makes no sense to a home gardener. And so I knew that I knew there was something there. So that was kind of, that was kind of when I thought, okay, I want to tell more stories. Let me find more people to write about and let me, let me visit more farms. And you visit a farm and you're hooked. You're like, oh my gosh, this, this is, this is the, you know, the, or, this is the OG. This is the original where flowers come from, not a cooler or not cellophane wrapped bouquets, but this is the seed in the ground stuff. So, um, you know, I was working on that book, The 50 Mob Okay, with a, a colleague who's a photographer, and we couldn't find a publisher for that book. Um, this was in 2010. Uh, his name is David Perry, and he was equally obsessed with flower farm photos <laughs> as I was with, with journalism. And um, we actually had even put some money together and hired a graphic designer to help create, to produce that book. We were going to self-publish. And then at the 11th hour, we found a publisher, um, St. Lynn's Press, which is, specializes in sustainable topics. Oh, wow. And um, that just that just gave us, a that opened the door, you know, for all these other things. Amazing. That's a, it's a great story. I love, I, I agree with you. Um, I personally love visiting farms just because uh, the small, small farms where um, you can tell that, you know, they're, uh, well, it, it's like you said, it's diverse and it's yeah. small. They put the seeds in the ground themselves. And it's a, there's a, a feeling um, when, when you go to these farms, there's a feeling of sort of peace. I think it's because it's so connected with nature and yeah. um, it's sort of this idea of being really closely tied with nature and working with nature in order to produce food, flowers, or whatever it is that, that you're growing. I tell you during COVID, it was the safest place to be. I had a, <laughs> I had a, a, a contract to produce videos about flower farmers. Uh, it was a USDA grant. Hmm. And um, I would go with the videographer. We did eight. We did visited eight farms and, and pr- produced eight small videos. And um, 
you know, right in early days of COVID, I think our first filming was May 8th or something last year. Oh, wow. And I, I said to the videographer, there's, we're on eight acres with three people. This is so much safer than going to Trader Joe's and buying groceries. We're going to be fine. And it was truly the, the gig that kept my mind at peace all of last year. So helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Get out into nature and uh, really see, well, yeah, just open space. And yeah. And meet people who are just like truly, you know, committed to earning a living from their land in a sustainable way. Yeah. And that's really inspiring. You you mentioned the David and Goliath story of these small scale farmers that well you and you visited them uh, in comparison to this massive uh, and and we're seeing this kind of in the sustainability world everywhere it's mirrored in in many many ways. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, how how would you say based on what you're seeing so far? How would you say that the uh, the Davids of the flower industry, um, so really these slow flower uh, farmers who support the slow flower movement, how how are they doing? How's it going? Yeah, I mean it's it's been really exciting to watch. I mean, they, they really have found their voice. And in most cases, they have um, become more entrepreneurial and uh, more vocal about um, what they're offering their marketplace. And so that's been really, you know, at the, you know, against the alternative, which is global floral culture, a reliance on trade policies that incentivize imports, you know, cheap labor, maybe less stringent environmental practices. Um, the micro farmer has more diversity, mm-hmm. uh, has um, what I, I call like artisanal or heirloom um, flower choices versus the shippable flowers, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so the that farm to florist connection is strengthening. And um, the competitive edge that these small scale or innovative, you know, micro farmers have is that their flowers, they're growing varieties that can't be shipped. Okay. So the the this, the big companies that are exporting to the U.S. can't compete with sweet peas, or um, you know, adalia or something that you know is just needs to be transported in water, hmm. and that's the edge that. And and luckily, the, because of Instagram and florists, you know, falling in love with these flowers, that's where the demand is. So it really benefits the um, the farmer who is out plugged in and really where like, okay, this is this is um, gonna. I can't compete on price. I can compete on quality and variety. Yeah, and that makes sense. I, it's like what what we were just saying about having that custom sort of bespoke unique mm-hmm. piece um mm-hmm. an interesting question from from mubashir uh who's saying that um uh so mubashir usually gifts flower plants instead of fl- cut flowers mm-hmm. uh and and actually that's something i like to do to bring bring a living plant mm-hmm. in in a pot of soil um because yeah, as mubashir says they they instead of lasting a couple days they they can last well in theory years depending yeah. on, on the type of plant is would you say this is more sustainable you know, it's, it's very sustainable. I would, I, it's just a different aesthetic, you know, in some, uh, I think plants have not, the plant world has not fallen to the challenges of the cut flower world because of, um, there are some interstate, uh, sales regulations on, like, for example, you have to have a permit to bring plants or cut flowers into the state of California because they're, Mm. 
because it's an agriculture policy, they're worried about soil-borne pests and diseases. So it's kind of kept plants local more than flowers, the, just just by nature of, of whatever those, those ag policies are. Hmm. Also, the weight of shipping a pot with a root ball and soil is cost prohibitive. So it's, so the plant world hasn't, hasn't become as, you know, reliant on like the Amazon effect than that the flower world has. Um, It's definitely there. You can order plants online and and have them shipped to you, but it's just, there's more restrictions and more, more um, limitations. And some of them are just pure financial. So in that regard, I, I really think that the, the nursery industry has benefited from being more local and just, you know, also we want to buy plants that are uh, suitable to our zone, right? So we're probably getting them from a local nursery. If it's an indoor plant, that's a little bit different. And I love Mubashir's idea. I, I would love to have a gift, a plant as a gift, but I also love to have flowers as a gift. Yeah. Um, the way I, I balance that out is, well, usually, um, this is probably not the most sustainable type of flower, but I love orchids as a gift. They're very classic and, uh, they are beautiful, but they're probably not seasonal or local. You know, they're orchids are tricky, but, um, they're, they probably started in a, yeah, they probably started in a lab in Asia and, and like became a, a little kind of like tissue culture that got massively shipped to somebody who grew it on in, in the UK or in the U S. So okay, it's kind of like bulbs, like every bulb that I grow, it started in Holland probably, but I'm growing that tulip in my garden, you know, and seeds, the seeds, the seed industry is, is international too. So, you know, that's the next hill we're going to climb together, Daniel. <laughs> Well, on, on that point, what what are uh, future innovations that um, that you're seeing uh, in the industry, or, the, or that you'd like to see um, in the flower farming and slow flowers and just floristry in general? Well, every year we do a. Well, I think for the last seven years we do an annual uh, forecast. Um, I don't use the word trend, but it's like a, a, a forecast for changes that are on the horizon or that mm. we're that we're documenting. Comes out every the first Wednesday of every year. So usually the first week of January. And two years ago, I did forecast the um, increased demand more than ever for organic flower seeds. So in the seed industry, there's huge selection and availability of organic food, um, herb, and um, you know any kind of crop that you can grow in a, in a food farm. Mm-hmm. That has not been the case in flowers. And so now, now growers are asking for that. And... Um, the industry is trying to catch up. The seed providers are trying to breed uh, and produce organic cut, uh, flower seeds. So that's exciting. Hmm. Um, I think I mentioned a little bit about the flower farmer empowerment, like how farmers are really leading instead of just being responsive. And um, one of the innovations I'm seeing is how f- it all across North America, there are collectives, cooperatives, co-marketing uh, groups. I mean, whatever way you want to define it, uh, of farmers coming together and creating their own marketplace, their own wholesale hub. So um, that is happening in a really exciting way. The one that I'm involved in is just celebrating its 10th year. It's a legal cooperative uh, called the Seattle Wholesale Growers Market. And um, it is owned by about 15 or 16 farms in Oregon and Washington, and they own their own distribution. 
So that is happening. Now there's people mo- modeling, you know, their own version of that all across the country and mainly hmm. in, mainly in, you know, de- demographic hubs. Like, you know, there's one in New Jersey and one in Connecticut and they're basically serving the New York market. Um, they're, you know, just by virtue of, it's cheaper to have really, you know, have something outside of the city. There's one in North Carolina. There's one in the twin cities. Uh, there's one in Toronto. So this is happening, you know, in an exciting way that farmers are driving. Um, is it almost like a CSA? No, it's, it's like, um, it, it's, it's more like they're selling wholesale to the trade only to florists. Oh, I see. So it's like the middleman is gone now. The farmer is his own middleman hmm. because the farmers are collectively coming together to sell their flowers to the florists. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, not to bash the middleman because wholesalers do play an essential role, but really they could be selling anything. They buy bulk and sell to someone who can't buy bulk. You know, they, they're like redistributors. There is a softening of resistance to, um, to local flowers in those channels. There are some people who are doing it really well and who are have local departments within their warehouse where you know all, all the local or American grown flowers are. There's others who all the evidence is staring them in the face and they won't change. So bye-bye. Um, and the other innovation I would mention is that florists are disrupting this traditional wholesale distribution channel by doing what I do, going direct to flower farmers. And um, you know, developing relationships because as they develop relationships with flower farmers, then they can tell their clients, Hey, I knew the person who grew this. And you know what? This is a fabulous flower. It's seasonal. It has a story. You're going to want it for your event or your wedding or your vase on the center, you know, in the center of your table. Like it's creating, and this is why we have so many new members in Slow Flowers. These florists need to connect with the farmers so that they can differentiate themselves in their own marketplace. Mm-hmm. And B, oh, that's the that's the sustainable florist, or that's the florist who cares about local, and that's just what we've seen happen with restaurants. It's just no. paralleling in the finally in the floral industry. So well, that's yeah, I, mean, I I love it. It's really about to me. It sounds like kind of the overarching theme here is almost using technology to bring people who are close together actually together because uh, sometimes it's difficult to find these individuals and really know where to look. And, um, but yeah, I think those are, those are, those are all great points for a uh, question that came to mind is um, you're focused. Slowflowers.com is focused really on the USA and Canada mm-hmm. currently. What about internationally? I mean, flowers are most of the flowers as we talked about are come, come from international uh, well, come from other countries into the U S so mm-hmm. it, is this kind of movement also being seen or have you seen or heard of it happening abroad, meaning Europe or yeah. South America, Africa? Oh, so yeah. That. There are, there are people who have completely co-opted the Slow Flowers hashtag and put their country on it. Wonderful. Um, there's a, one organization has a chosen to affiliate with us and it's Slow Flowers Italy. And okay. I'm trying to... Um, align myself with like one group in every country and let them be an official affiliate. Uh, but there are, you know, any of the kind of, as I said earlier, countries that have seen a lot of their agriculture outsourced, um, Australia, um, all, all throughout Europe. And, um, you know, those are mainly, mainly where we're seeing it. Um, in the UK, there's a group that is grown up very similar to slow flowers, kind of around the same time. 
they actually just celebrated their 10th anniversary. It's called Flowers from the Farm. And I just want to tell you about that because you're in the UK and you need to know yeah. them. But it is it's so exciting. It's a it's basically a directory of farmers selling growing flowers in the UK and probably maybe into Scotland and Ireland as well. Um, fabulous people. I've spent time with with a Jill Jillian Hodgson, the founder, and um, visited them. They've hosted me. I've seen her when she's been in the US. But that is. A, they're, they're they're doing their own thing, and I love it because uh, we share resources and ideas with each other, and very similar issues with the you know they're the they're the Davids to the Goliath of the inner you know the large scale flower importers. Well, it's a yeah, flowers from the farm. I'll, I'll take a look. It sounds uh, they sound. Uh, like they're, they're doing some fantastic. They're work. awesome. Yeah, you got to have them on the show next. <laughs> yeah, that'd be amazing. Yeah. We're going to turn uh, you into a flower uh, journalist very soon, Daniel. <laughs> sounds great. Uh, yeah, different. I suppose that's a, a more literal translation or literal usage of flower child. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, are, are there any sustainability leaders that you admire, or perhaps a, a book, or a podcast, or even a TV show, or something in in the flower world? In addition, of course, to your books. Yeah. Uh, that. Um, that you know you you can recommend to our audience. Uh, absolutely. Well, uh, my favorite is called the Sustainable Flowers Podcast, and it's, it's the hosts are two of our Slow Flowers members from uh, Alberta, Canada. Hmm. And they're two flower farmers, Heather Henson and Clara Qualitza. Heather owns Boreal Blooms, and um, Clara owns Meadow and Thicket Farm Flowers. They started this podcast because they, you know. The population is very low uh, in Alberta. They are, I think, four or five hours away from each other. And they wow. just were having conversations about how to farm sustainably in, uh, you know, zone four or whatever. And so they uh, just started recording their conversations. Now they have fabulous, you know, they've really gotten down and dirty about what it means to grow sustainably. And uh, it's a great podcast. So the Sustainable Flowers podcast, I would definitely recommend. Mm -hmm. Um in terms of books, I will just mention, I, uh, in the boredom of COVID, I started a publishing company with a colleague and the book, the company is called, um, Bloom Imprint. And we, um, our first book just came out. It's called Where We Bloom. And it's, oh, wow. it's, it's very much a lifestyle book. It's, it's, it's stories of, um, the creative spaces where flower farmers and florists uh, do their work. Beautiful. Um, but we have a couple books coming up uh, later, one this year and one next year that are more in the sustainable realm. One is um, a book called Growing Wonder, and it's by Felicia Alvarez. And she is a uh, she grows garden roses for the floral trade, and she's and it's all about organic and sustainable practices. And so that's coming out in September. The subtitle is basically a, a, a florist's guide to growing garden roses. Okay. And then uh, we have an, a book coming out in 2022 by a small scale farming couple, Adam and Jennifer O'Neill. They are in, in Iowa and um, they're really showing people how you can have a successful farm-based business, even if you only have one acre <laughs> and build it around flowers. And that's going to be called small farms, small farm, big dreams. So if you come to my, um, my uh, website, I, you can find links to all of that stuff. So sounds very good. And yeah. what is that website in case someone's looking uh, up right now? I well, I would start with slowflowerssociety.com. That's sort of our umbrella where all of our channels are. And um, 
I don't think the publishing company is there yet, so I'll have to link it up, but it's Bloom Imprint. So Sounds uh, very good. You know, the thing is, every time I have a new idea, I start a new website. It's really unfortunate. I'm not very well organized, but um, now I'm trying to channel them all through one front door. So. I'm sure you'll get there soon enough. Cheers, oh, Daniel. <laughs> what, what can people do on a daily basis to be more sustainable in their daily lives? Well, of course, I'm going to give you a flower answer. I hope that's that okay. Very good. Um, ask questions. Ask where was this flower grown? Who grew it? What practices were used? Um, demand that information. And when I go to the grocery store, I always do this. And, you know, unfortunately, I've got some some, you know, junior clerk who doesn't know anything and has to go get the manager and the manager doesn't know anything like this. The corporations want us to not know. Um, so that's where I say demand proper labeling, but of course, grow your own flowers, meet flower farmers, and, uh, just remember the magic of flowers. You know, they've been symbols for millennia and, um, played an important role in history of the world. But now we're, we're seeing, that flowers are here for our mental health and wellness as well. And, you know, everyone should enjoy that. Absolutely. And uh, Nicholas Aracis just says to says, thank you for the knowledge. And he's totally changing his flower buying habits now. Awesome, Nicholas. I love it. That's so great. Well, anyone can do it. I mean, on a, a packet of seeds is a couple dollars or I don't know what it would be the equivalent for you. And, but you know, less than a cup of coffee at Starbucks, sure. you can grow your own flowers. And it's, I think that's the easiest way. That's the most local that you can yeah. do. Um, and yeah. if you're growing them indoors, which some are easy to do, um, then you don't even need to step outside to get flowers. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> I love it. So um, uh, you, you mentioned uh, slowflowerssociety.com. Is there anywhere else uh, people should go if they want to learn more about your work, check out your books, become a member of the Slow Flowers movement what's the best way to uh yeah all of that you can you can find everything and we do have a membership level for supporters and enthusiasts just mm -hmm. people who who care about this they're not ever going to be per professional but they just want to support um the conversation and and learn more and so um kind of like joining a garden club so we've got that level of membership and which is pretty nominal and then i would say i do have a weekly podcast it's called the slow flowers podcast you can download that wherever you wherever you download your podcasts. Um, it is not video, but Danielle, you're inspiring me to go video later this summer, but right now it's audio only. Well, hopefully soon we'll, we'll start watching the conversations as <laughs> okay. well as listening to them. Yeah. Well, um, Deborah, thank you very much for your time. And so we have Deborah Prinzing here from the slow flower movement. Uh, and thank you again for joining us today to talk about the importance of sourcing local seasonal and sustainable flowers. So Deborah, thank you very much. And thank you for everyone for listening in today. Yeah. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed it so much. Take care. so much for joining us today. A special thank you to friend and floral design educator Hitomi Gilliam for introducing me to Daniel. Hitomi is also a past guest of Sustainability Champions, and you can find the link to that episode featuring Daniel's interview with Hitomi in today's show notes. 
I'll also share details on how you can subscribe to his fantastic video series. And by the way, Hitomi's a past guest of the Slow Flowers podcast, so I'll share that link as well. We also want to thank two additional show sponsors. Thank you to Johnny's Selected Seeds, an employee-owned company that provides our industry with the best flower, herb, and vegetable seeds supplied to farms large and small, and even to backyard cutting gardens like mine. Find the full catalog of flower seeds and bulbs at johnnysseeds.com. And thank you to Mayesh Wholesale Florist. Family-owned since 1978, Mayesh is the premier wedding and event supplier in the U.S., and we're thrilled to partner with Mayesh to promote local and domestic flowers, which they source from farms large and small around the U.S. Learn more at mayesh.com. Thanks so much for joining us today. While the Slow Flowers show is just getting started on video, the Slow Flowers podcast has been around for eight years, and we've been downloaded nearly 750,000 times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. As our movement gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of our domestic cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. I value your support and invite you to show your thanks to support Slow Flower's ongoing advocacy, education, and outreach activities. You can find the donate button in the column to the right at DebraPrinzing.com. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers podcast. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more slow flowers on the table, one vase at a time. And if you like what you hear, please consider logging onto iTunes and posting a listener review. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers Show is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. Thank you so much to Andrew for helping me set up our new video podcast platform and for teaching me the technology. I'll be relying more on his talents in the coming days. You can learn more about Andrew's work at soundbodymovement.com. Music.